Pop, episode 61, The Beach Boys in the 80s. Welcome back to Pop with Ken Mills. That's right, I am back, even if only for a little while. Today, we have a guest host. We have Craig Cohen joining us. Hey, Ken. How's it going? Going really good. It is great to talk to you, as always. Same. Today, we're going to take a look at something that kind of gets overlooked and overshadowed. It's the Beach Boys in the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. The Beach Boys have such a huge musical history and legacy, and it is astounding if you – I mean, a lot of people really think of them as a 60s band, but they kept going, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty funny because I'm a Beach Boys fan. That's why we're here talking about them. But my Beach Boys fandom really sort of started in – well, I wasn't alive, but, you know, with the stuff they did from 65 onward, so – you know, I own all the surf stuff, obviously, but when I'm looking to listen to an album, I won't really grab anything, you know, before the Beach Boys today or Summer Days and Summer Nights. A lot of people will say that the second side of the Beach Boys today sort of have everything you need to see where Brian was going when he made Bet Sounds. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I really find a lot of nuggets, if you will, and a lot of really, really good quality music in the output they put out in the late 60s and early 70s. And that's really when Brian was sort of dealing with some stuff and the rest of the band had to step up and sort of contribute more. And that's when Carl really sort of took the reins. And then in the 80s, it sort of became the Mike Love Show. Mm -hmm. People always ask me how much of a Beach Boys fan I am. And I usually say enough to to dislike Mike Love. (laughs) So... Yeah, Mike Love is probably like one of the most, I don't want to say hated men in rock, and I don't think misunderstood's the right word either, but he's a personality. He wrote a book in 2016, and I got it out of the library to read it, and I got to say, I came away from it with a little bit more of an appreciation for Mike Love. I think he kind of demands more credit than he deserves probably but at the same time i don't think he gets enough credit so it's kind of a weird sort of balancing act i do there with mike love Mm -hmm. well he's definitely a crucial part of the beach boys story as all of them and now it's become a thing of legend right whether it's because of movies like love and mercy or documentaries and a lot of people are getting to know the beach boys more as personalities now at this point culturally than they ever really did before. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and that's one of the things that sort of happens when you become a legend is all of a sudden everybody wants to know about you. Uh And with a 50-plus year history behind them, there's a lot of information to mine. There's been a lot of books written. There's a lot of interviews out there. So people are really able to sort of paint a picture of those people now. And, you know, Brian Wilson's story is one of the most fascinating stories in music. I mean, it's ultimately a success story because he's still with us and still making music. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there were some dark times there for him. And I mean, he made it out the other end. His, you know, his two brothers didn't. Right. And he's kind of like Van Gogh in a way, right? Like as an artist, I grew up hearing the stories of famous writers and famous artists and stuff like that who lived a tortured existence. 
And we kind of can look back with an immediacy with Brian Wilson's story, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and we can see the – I'm going to call the tortured artist effect. I know I didn't coin that, but that's kind of what we're looking at, right? Someone who has to learn to overcome the things that might make them an artist in the first place, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, as far as Mike Love goes, I'm sure he's a lovely person. Uh, I, I don't really know him. I'm just going by things I've read and things I've seen in interviews and stuff, right? So, so Mike, if you're listening, I still love you. <laughs> that was a cool Ramones cover you did last summer. Yeah, with Marky. Or Marky played it live with him. Uh, you know, it's fun. Anytime that the Ramones are getting propped up in 2020, I, I'm not going to complain. Mm-hmm. Now, Craig, one of the reasons we're doing this is because you're working on a very cool project. What is this all about? What are you doing with the Beach Boys Legacy? Well, you know, one of the things I've been doing here, you know, during the pandemic is finding ways to sort of keep myself busy and engaged. And one of the things I've really liked to do is put together these videos that sort of, you know, showcase a band during a certain time. I did one for the Ramones covering their entire career. And so I decided to tackle the Beach Boys in the 80s because I think there was a lot of good material to mine. So what I'm putting together is a feature-length compilation of all of the music videos and TV appearances and live concert footage of the band. So it's something you can just put on on a Friday night, maybe a crack of beer or you know your favorite cocktail, get your popcorn out. And it'll just take you on a journey through the Beach Boys in the 1980s. And I think it's really, really fun. If you want to find it, it's going to be accessible uh, via my Vimeo page. And the best way to get there is to just go to my flow page, which is flow.page forward slash Mr. Craig Cohen. And you can find a link to it there. And I, I think it's a lot of fun. And of course, links in the show notes. Now, as I said, we are talking about the Beach Boys in the 80s, but not the Beach Boys in their 80s. <laughs> no, which is, I think, uh, right now. Uh, yeah, appropriate <laughs> right about now. So anyway, now I want to tell our listeners that we will only be playing samples of songs. We are not going to play the whole songs. If you want, you can go to YouTube and listen to them for free or Spotify or anywhere else music is devalued. But we care about the artists enough that we, A, want you to check out their stuff and purchase it, and B, we don't like to get sued. So you're only going to hear samples here today. So, <laughs> And the good thing about the Beach Boys is there's like 85 million different greatest hits packages you can choose from, and there's one for, for just about every budget. So if you, if you hear something on here you dig, you can probably go on Amazon or eBay and, and find a, mm -hmm. a disc including that song for, a, you know, a couple of dollars. Right. But is there one called the Beach Boys in the 80s? Not yet. <laughs> I'm surprised, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I am. Um, I am because there's there's enough material to make a single disc uh -huh. um, that, that covers them in the 80s. Right. Now, everything to me is framed by my love of the Beatles. Like, for example, I look at the Beatles as having three main eras. There's the mop top era, and then there's the era that kind of starts – just at the end of Hard Day's Night, when they start picking up acoustic guitars and goes up to like Day Tripper and Tomorrow Never Knows. And then there's Sgt. Pepper's To Let It Be. So it's like you've got the mop tops, the mods, 
and then the hippie Beatles, for lack of a better term, right? So, yeah, is there that same sort of thing for the Beach Boys? Because I know that, for example, the Beach Boys had their early surf days and mm-hmm. hot rods, and then Brian just opened up as this incredible artist, and they did pet sounds and stuff like that. And so, is that like? the mod period for the Beach Boys, and then you've got the hippie era as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd say if we're looking at them through the 80s, you probably got, starting from the 60s to the the end of the 80s, you know, like probably five distinct periods. There was a period in the, Mm -hmm. like the early 70s where they incorporated um, Blondie Chapman and Ricky Fatar, who Uh a lot of people might know Ricky from uh, the Ruddles, but they were from a South African band named The Flame, and the early 70s output from the Beach Boys, like, I mean, they were like a legitimate, serious rock band. I mean, a lot of people weren't looking at it at that way. But if you listen to the material from that time, and there's even a live album, Beach Boys in Concert, from that time period. And they were putting on a, like a legitimate rock show. And I don't think a lot of people think about, you know, the Beach Boys as like a legitimate rock band by any stretch. But uh, there was a period where they were. Well, it didn't help that by this time, you know, Sunkissed had come and went, because remember that? I mean, they took over that song, you know, Sunkissed took over that song. Now, even to this day, when I hear the Beach Boys song, sometimes I'll hear them singing Sunkissed, you know, <laughs> I'll, I, I, yeah. I'll hear the jingle. But for better or for worse, the Beach Boys were the first... A legacy act in a sense that absolutely they became kind of endorsed even by Ronald Reagan by the time the eighties <laughs> got here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about them is, you know, there's a lot of bands that sort of became brands, but the interesting thing about the beach boys brand is they never really went down like the merchandising route. And I'm not sure if it's the fact that there weren't a lot of clear, obvious merchandising opportunities for them. But I mean, if you look at the stuff that other bands have sort of put their logo on, it's surprising that there's not more Beach Boys merch. But, you know, the fact that the Beach Boys themselves are the brand and they were used to sell other people's products, I think speaks a lot about their viability as an artist and also their ability to connect. I mean, there was a point where they were playing consecutive July 4ths in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, you know, in front of half a million people. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was that ability to connect. They were America's band. I mean, it wasn't uncool to like the Beach Boys. Right. And on the other hand, you know, you look at their logo, and I I just don't think it's that cool. (laughs) No, no, no. It's kind of like the definition of like, um, you know, Yacht Rock, if you will. I mean, they're not really a Yacht Rock band. But that logo is very Yacht Rock. Absolutely. I mean, it almost looks like the opening of a TV credit, like <laughs> Miami Vice or something, but it would be in that font. But it's not as cool as like the Monkees or Cheap Trick or the Rolling mm-hmm. Stones or Kiss or even the Doors, you know. There was yeah. no real distinctive thing. And I think that if you're going to do a lot of good merch, you need that distinctive thing. Because until you have that distinctive thing, about the only thing the Beach Boys could really market is like sunglasses yeah, a tanning boards. lotion, you know. <laughs> but how how come there wasn't like a, a Beach Boys tanning lotion? It's not too late. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> now, when we think about the Beach Boys in the 80s, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about this song a little bit, but we'll finish it up at the end. But the yeah. song Kokomo mm-hmm. really defines the generation that was the 80s. 
for the Beach Boys and their fans. That was like the zenith, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you had experimentation with, uh, for example, the Fat Boys, where the Beach Boys were cool in the rap community for five seconds. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, Wipeout. Yeah, you had Wipeout. But Kokomo had such a huge cultural impact, similar to Toto's Africa, when you think about it. It's notorious more than anything else. Right. You know, it's kind of like in the sense that it's often used as a joke or on a soundtrack or a meme. And it is just something that has had a long-lasting cultural impact. The last time I saw it was on Netflix's Space Force. <laughs> okay. You know, and just out of nowhere, the main character is trying to calm himself, so he sings Kokomo. So, it's it's just <laughs> something that that has stuck with us and it continues. And, you know, I'm not saying it's as good a song as uh, Africa, right? But it is just as beloved and just as remembered, you know? So Yeah, and, and, and Mike Love will have you know that it was their last number one single, which is pretty impressive considering that, you know, they had number one singles in the 60s and the 80s. I mean, a lot of bands can't say that. And it was also the highest charting single that Brian Wilson wasn't involved with. He was involved with the album that Kokomo appeared on, but he's nowhere on that track. He wasn't involved in the songwriting. You don't hear his voice on it. In, in fact, the, the only, I think, evidence of Brian Wilson and Kokomo is probably on that Full House episode they did where they sing a, an acapella version of Kokomo. Yes, <laughs> yes. But being on the uh, cocktail soundtrack, Mm -hmm. And on MTV, 24 hours a day did not hurt the song at all. No, and they became like a soundtrack band. And that was a Mike Love thing. And, you know, you have to give credit to Mike Love for mm -hmm. the Beach Boys sort of maintaining. It was his drive and his desire to keep them active as a band that really is the reason we're sitting here talking about them in the context that we're talking about them today. I mean, of course, we'd be talking about them as a 60s and, you know, a 60s act. But it was Mike Love, you know, Carl Wilson wasn't itching to go out there and play Beach Boys music, you know, in, in the late 80s. And, you know, Brian was doing a solo career. So it was really, you know, Mike Love. And part of that strategy was getting them on soundtracks. Uh, you know, in addition to Cocktail, they were, I think, in the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack. Mm -hmm. There were probably four or five different movie soundtracks that they popped up on. And, you know, that was a really great promotional tool in the 80s. That was a way to get your your music out there is, you know, people would hear your song in a movie. And I mean, soundtracks used to be a big deal. Right. People don't realize how huge that became in the 80s. Yeah. You know, after MTV, it was probably this, you know, the second best way to get exposure. And they worked hand in hand. You had MTV driving the soundtrack, which was then distributed to radio for all intents and purposes. That's kind of how it actually worked. You could give a song to radio, but it didn't mean crap until we saw the video. Right. So, how many albums did the Beach Boys release in the 80s? Of original material, they put out only three. Um, they started the 80s with uh, the 1980s, Keeping the Summer Alive. And they ended the 80s. Um, in 89, they released Still Cruising. Probably their biggest splash, um, aside from Kokomo, in, in the 80s was 1985 self-titled release, The Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. Which is really a confusing album title. If you're a fan, you know, you go to the store and ask for the Beach Boys and they'll just give you anything. 
you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Brian talked about the self-titled nature of that at one point. He said they had so many silly album titles leading up to it that they just felt that uh, a nice reset would do well. They had, um, you know, albums in the late 70s called MIU and mm -hmm. LA for light album. Yeah. So I think they, you know, they were kind of sick of just having like the silly names. So it was kind of like a soft reboot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the Beach Boys uh, musical universe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So who all was the Beach Boys in the 80s? You pretty much, you know, had a, a core lineup of, you know, Beach Boys in the studio. You had, of course, Carl, Dennis, and Brian Wilson, the three brothers, Mike Love, their cousin, Al Jardine, and then um, Bruce Johnston, who sort of got on board in 65. He drove that band uh, through most of the 70s, and then he left in the late 70s and returned for keeping the summer alive, and he actually produced that 1980 album. So that was the the core the core unit, and of course Dennis uh, died tragically in 1983, mm -hmm. and they never really replaced him. I mean, they also had a great great group of guys backing them up on tour and in the studio. Uh, they had guys like uh, Adrian Baker and Bobby Figueroa, and a whole bunch of other people. So you know they were they were smart enough to surround themselves with good musicians. And that goes all the way back to, you know, when Brian was actively producing them and, you know, they were using the wrecking crew, like 80, 80% of the other artists in the sixties were. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I've never heard anyone say anything bad about Al Jardine <laughs> or Bruce Johnston. And, you know, Bruce Johnston has the smiliest face <laughs> I've ever seen. Like, I don't think that guy's ever had a bad day. I know that he has, cause he's a human, obviously, but he just comes across as just so jovial and just a, just a smile. Like when I think of him, I think of smile. Yeah, yeah. Him and Al are both, you know, they're non-controversial guys. And, you know, Bruce Johnston is a talented, talented guy. And mm -hmm. he's famous in his own right. He wrote one of Barry Manilow's biggest hits, I Write the Songs, mm -hmm. you know, which he wrote about Brian Wilson and um, has a production career. And, and like I said, he produced a bunch of Beach Boys albums, including that 1980 release. When I was working in radio in the early 2000s, we did a remote from a balloon festival, and the Beach Boys were headlining it. And um, I was probably deep in my Beach Boys fandom at that time, and there was some kind of contest where you got to meet Mike and Bruce, who were really the only active Beach Boys at that point. So as we were sort of milling around between the radio moments, I got to talk to Bruce, and I talked to him about this album they did in the seventies called Sunflower, and mm -hmm. Bruce was amazed that a guy in like his you know mid twenties was so knowledgeable about an album that they had released and had pretty much been forgotten. So it was kind of cool to know that I had you know sort of made Bruce hip to the fact that young people were still listening to their music. Now is that album their elder? <laughs> you know what? I'm not sure what album uh, would be considered their elder. Because almost every band has that album, the one that they feel that they lost their way on or their fans feel that they lost their way on, you know. For example, for Cheap Trick, it was The Doctor. For Kiss, it was Music from the Elder. But a lot of bands go through that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you could. I guess you could argue that, you know, the Beach Boys, most of the 80s was like that for them. But the one thing about the, the Beach Boys in the 80s, Ken, for me, is... They were able to sound, con you know, contemporary, but at the same time, they weren't chasing trends. 
there's something to be said for that because they never really changed the way they made music. It was, you know, the song structure stayed the same. Like I said, they might have been using contemporary sounds. You know, the 85 uh-huh. album was produced by the guy that worked with Culture Club. Right. But it still sounds like the Beach Boys. And, you know, they weren't doing, you know, you know, I guess with the exception of that collaboration with the Fat Boys, you know, they weren't chasing trends. Right. Well, like when I think about the Beach Boys doing something radically different, remember the song Do It Again? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That to me, that drum sound that yeah. sounds like a run through a synthesizer or something, run through an effect or something. I, I always thought that that was such a forward sounding song when it came out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was that was in the, the mid to late 60s. Yeah, but if you go into the 80s and now all of a sudden you're hearing the big beat and you're hearing like Owner of a Broken Heart with the sample, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that sound is everywhere in the 80s. Yeah. Uh So, you know, that kind of a thing. So, I know that at this point we're talking about a band that is over 20 years old, which, you know, (laughs) I remember at the time, like I I color my hair now, right? And I remember around this time, I remember seeing the Rolling Stones in the 80s, and I remember seeing them like on TV, and they had gray hair. And then the next week in Rolling Stone, they all had like (laughs) jet black hair, and I went, I will never color my hair. Yeah. And then the first gray hair appeared, and I became a Just for Men customer. But I know that we're talking about a band that had an over 20-some year career at this point. And I know that they stepped off and did solo projects and stuff. How did the solo careers impact what the band was doing in the 80s? Well, you had a period in around 1981 where they sort of became a a legacy act and where I think, you know, the band really realized that they didn't need to put out full albums to sort of stay on the road. And Carl Wilson really, really got frustrated with the fact that the band was sort of just becoming this this machine. Yeah, Heritage Act or Legacy Act. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that really prompted Carl. He never officially left the band, but he did leave the touring portion of the group and went out and made a solo album in 81. And then also he released another one in 83. And that was strictly his desire to just start playing music that felt like it mattered again. Brian was lazy, for lack of a better word. And he was always making music, but he had a a tendency to not really stay interested enough to finish things. And finally, in 1988, through the care he was getting from his doctor and the support he had from Warner Brothers and Sire Records, uh, he was able to make uh, a solo album. And at that point, that's really where Brian Wilson really strayed from the Beach Boys until that purely business reunion in 2012 Mm -hmm. for their 50th right and then of course dennis and the tragedy in 1983 that's definitely affected everyone yeah and dennis actually put out in the late 70s he put out a a well-regarded album called pacific ocean blue and he was working on an album uh at the time of his death uh that was supposed to be called bamboo and both of those albums have been released as like a a two a, a twofer. You can buy it all together. Mm-hmm. It's if you Google Dennis Wilson albums, but it, it's a great collection. And um, it's funny. Um, I remember that you know that movie Marley and Me with yes. Owen Wilson. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I remember watching that for the first time and one of the, the songs from, uh, I think River Song from Pacific Ocean Blue popped up in there and I was like, wow, somebody's, somebody's fighting for Dennis's estate and getting his songs in movies. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and Mike Love even, yeah, and Mike Love even put out a couple of solo albums, but, uh, you know, I don't think he, you know, he likes to talk about those much anymore. Right. As with, as with all great brands and bands, it all, you always got to come home, right? You gotta, you gotta come back to the, to the one that brung you to the dance. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the sad reality of the music business is a name is a lot more important than the, the music behind it sometimes. Right. And at this point, as you mentioned, them playing the 4th of July for the, for the country every year mm-hmm. for, for the longest time, they really became America's band. I remember Ronald Reagan kind of dubbing them that. And yep. uh, I know that they had a lot of huge appearances, and we're going to get into television later, but let's talk about some of their biggest appearances in the 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go back to those, 1980 and 1981 were two big July 4ths. 1980, they played in Washington, D.C. to half a million people. That was um, recorded and filmed. In 81, they played July 4th weekend. So July 4th, they played Washington, D.C. And then they did a gig in California on July 5th at the Queen Mary in Long Beach for 200,000 people, probably. That was um, broadcast over over satellite. Now, I don't remember what I was doing July 4th weekend in 1981 or, or how, how I could have watched that gig. But it was a big celebration. You know, Wolfman Jack hosted it. And it was a big deal, and then of course they were they were part of Live Aid, uh-huh. and they even played um, the early Farm Aids that Willie Nelson had put together. I really I think those are probably like those like probably the four biggest shows they did in the eighties, and I, I don't think you can you know undervalue how big playing Live Aid was. Uh-huh. Absolutely, but I remember it being so weird because as you mentioned that huge broadcast that they had in uh, what was it eighty two. I remember them just getting their own like TV show, like all the networks, a bunch of the networks were showing it and that kind of stuff didn't happen, you know? Yeah. Uh Like this was before, like, for example, Simon and Garfunkel on HBO and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. You normally didn't see that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. It really was amazing. And it was the first time that I can really recall that our culture was kind of like saying, you guys don't need to do anything but do what you do. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Before it was like, ah, if you're not making new music, get out of here. But uh-huh. I really think it was the first time that we said, no, we're we're cool with you guys being an oldies act. Yeah, and in a weird way, Ken, I think that that added a lot of sort of, I don't know if security is the right, right word, but it, it kind of just, I think, put everybody at ease that they knew that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the sun would set and, and we had the Beach Boys, you mm-hmm. know, to, to play music for us. You know, it was, it was one of those things you could sort of depend on. I think in a time where, you know, you couldn't really depend on a lot of things. And it was automatic when it comes to people. We just had to do it again, right? <laughs> I had to go. Yes. I love that song so much. That's a great song. Now, we mentioned the Fat Boys earlier, but uh-huh. who all did they collaborate with in the 80s? In the early 80s, they did a weird collaboration called East Meets West with the Four Seasons uh-huh. that failed to chart. They also did a song in 1987 
with Little Richard called Happy Endings. Mm-hmm. They did a cover version of their uh, Don't Worry Baby with the Everly Brothers. Yeah. And, and then, of course, again, they worked with the Fat Boys. They also did a big sort of, I think it was probably a co-headlining tour with Chicago, which, you know, was probably a, a really, really hot ticket that summer. Oh, yeah. Wow. Definitely would have been a must-see show. Now, you mentioned that there was like the uh, contractual Let's Get Back Together appearance, I think, in 2002, what, the 50th anniversary? Yeah, 2011, 2012-ish. Yeah. Yeah, that was their their last album of original material as well. Right. So, we're here in the 80s, and this is like, even though America had kind of like decided, you guys are just fine to just do the show, they weren't happy with that. They felt that they're a working band and mm-hmm. they were still part of that business model where you make the album, then you tour on the album. Yeah, the, the whole the whole cycle yeah. involved in it. And now yeah. everything's completely backwards. You do the tour, so maybe you can put out one MP3 <laughs> yeah, and yeah. sell T-shirts, right? Well, yeah, and the interesting thing is if you look at that last album they put out in the 80s, they sort of compiled all of the soundtrack work they had done. Um, you know, Still Cruising was from Lethal Weapon 2, Kokomo from Cocktail. They had a song, Make It Big, that was in Troop Beverly Hills. And then the last three songs on the album are all just 60s songs that they threw on at the end. I Get Around, Wouldn't It Be Nice, and California Girls, all that appeared in movies. I Get Around was in Good Morning Vietnam, Wouldn't It Be Nice was from The Big Chill, mm-hmm. and California Girls from Soul Man. So you really had, like, what? six songs that people really hadn't heard before that album came out out of a, out of 10. So, you know, they, they were sort of going down that road already. And, you know, it's interesting because they existed at a time when there was still really, really, really good money to be made putting that album out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's safe to say that the eighties were their truly last productive period. Absolutely. They put out one more album of original material after Still Cruising, and that was 1992's Summer in Paradise. They would then, in 96, put out a weird country collaboration called Stars and Stripes Volume 1. There was never a Volume 2, where they redid old Beach Boy songs with contemporary country artists of the time. So 92 was the last full album of original music they put out until that's why God made the radio in 2012. Mm. So yeah, I mean, the 80s was their last true creative blast. After that, they went full heritage and uh, didn't really see the need to make new music to promote going on tour to play old music. And in a sense, we even had at one time two Beach Boys going around the country, right? You had Brian Wilson's band Mm -hmm. and the beach boys yeah well it's funny because mike love pays a licensing fee every year to tour as the beach boys so um the beach boys collective brian wilson probably the estate of carl wilson the estate of dennis wilson uh and mike love all make money from it so brian wilson is content to let bruce uh and mike go out there and tour as the beach boys because he can basically sit at home and you know get a percentage of every tour stop they do and then there was also a, a weird litigious period where Al Jardine was even touring, I think, as the Beach Boys' family and friends. And they put a stop to that. And Al is now pretty much a part of Brian's touring band. Mm-hmm. 
It's amazing how it all works out. <laughs> but that album, Still Cruising at the time, had to be a godsend for fans of the Beach Boys who were accumulating 45s and casingles <laughs> to have all those songs on one thing. It, it had to be a very good thing for a, a diehard fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, in, in 93, that's when the, the real sort of reissue push happened. And, and that's when the Good Vibrations box set came out. And then you started getting the um, the reissues where some of the stuff came out on CD for the first time. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to talk about this because the, the Beach Boys were now being used on soundtracks and even appearances in some things. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they became around the same time that the Monkees were having their comeback. You know, that's how nostalgia works, folks. Every 20 years, whatever was going on before. Make no mistakes. What happened in World War II started happening again in the 60s. That's why you had Artie Johnson's character going, very interesting, and Hogan's Heroes, yeah. and all the movies where Eagles Dare, and all those movies that came out about World War II and what was going on. And that's something about pop culture, right? Until we were able to record pop culture, it didn't become a thing, because prior to recorded music and recorded film, you might have heard those old songs from down home, but it didn't it wasn't the same thing where you were trying to buy your youth again. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nostalgia is kind of a you know, modern nostalgia is, is kind of a new concept, right? Well, relatively new. Like I remember in nineteen sixty something, like eight or nine and seventy, when UHF became a thing and you they started showing the older shows on TV. Mm-hmm. And people were like, wait, you can do that? And you would have like what was to, to us back then, it was like having cable, right? There was that one channel in every major city that would show Gilligan's Island and Batman and all these things that had run in first run and now they're running in syndication. It was a big thrill. And with that came, get four sets of the early songs of rock and roll. And I remember my mom like flipping out going, oh, we got to get that. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. I haven't heard that song in 10 years, you know? so Yeah, all the time life stuff, right? Yeah, and you'd have like the best of jazz and the four-disc set of old-time radio. So it became really in the late 60s, early 70s, that's when people said, you mean I can buy what I used to be able to exist here temporarily, right? Mm-hmm. Now you can own it. And it was weird because you get like a four-disc set for like, Nine ninety nine, a four album set with with fifty songs on it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that whole sort of nostalgia train for the Beach Boys started, at least in in terms of issuing music in eighty one. A guy named John Palladino put together this medley called the Beach Boys Medley that reached number twelve on Billboard. Mm-hmm. Medleys are kind of a big thing now. A lot of heritage acts will do probably an eight-minute medley section during their show just to fit in all the songs that they won't have time to play. Right. And this was just sections of Good Vibration that bled into Help Me Rhonda, I Get Around, Shut Down, Surfing Safari, Barbara Ann, Surfing USA, and Fun, Fun, Fun. And the Beach Boys did quite a few TV appearances where they would just go out and they would lip sync to that and everybody would go home feeling good. Mm-hmm. Well, it was no surprise that now the parents who had grown up with them as they were teens could now watch like Full House mm-hmm. with the Beach Boys or the Monkees or whatever they had experienced as a teen 
they could now share that with their kids in prime time. And they were all over the place. Yeah. Not to mention the really weird John Stamos connection. But we'll really get into that later. But he kind of became a de facto member of the band for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. He worked his way up to being their drummer. Yeah. So bizarre. So bizarre. Well, we will get there. That's the Mike Love factor at play again. Oh, okay. Now, you've mentioned that Brian wasn't always involved. How did Brian's lack of involvement impact the band at this point? Because they're still trying to be productive, still trying to do things. But their main star that they followed, their their main guide, right, was not always present. So how did that affect the impact of the band? Yeah. Well, Brian Wilson was always sort of the carrot that the Beach Boys would dangle in front of record companies and to a lesser extent audiences because there was like a legitimate excitement surrounding Brian Wilson and rightfully so. I mean, the guy had written and produced so many of the songs that people had grown up knowing and loving. And the record companies really knew that from a brand standpoint, that in addition to the Beach Boys brand, you could have a sub-brand within the Beach Boys, you know, that being Brian Wilson, to really sell their music. Now, again, like I said, Brian was dealing with some stuff, and he would, you know, maybe go in the studio and lay something down and then sort of just forget about it or not want to finish it for whatever reason. So that really caused the other members of the group to step up and really contribute. And Carl Wilson really became sort of the de facto replacement for Brian Wilson. And in the 70s, he really flexed that muscle a lot. Mm -hmm. But in the 80s, it really forced, uh, you know, Carl and Mike and uh, even Dennis to really contribute a lot more material and then take those fragments that Brian had created and see what they could do with them. But at the same time, that's really when they started to reach out and work with other songwriters. They worked with John Phillips, who co-wrote Kokomo, mm -hmm. and Terry Melcher, who, you know, sort of became their producer, which was weird because the Beach Boys were always really good at sort of self-producing mm -hmm. or, you know, having a de facto member of the band step forward and be producer, whether it was Carl or Bruce or Brian when he was able to. Yeah, but when you get a chance to work with someone like Terry Melcher, who did so much work with Paul Revere and the Raiders and so many other people, you better run with that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And again, he had the sensibilities to sort of tap into the sound that people were looking for. Uh -huh. If you listen to the Mamas and the Papas remake they did, California Dreamin', which had Roger McGuinn on that 12-string Terry Melcher was a talented, talented dude, and, and he knew how to produce music that people would respond to. Uh -huh. Well, let's take a look at each one of the legitimate Beach Boys singles that came out. We're going to go one by one. We're going to play a little bit of each one, but we're not giving away the stores, folks. We want you to purchase something that you love here. This is just for information and discussion. So let's start out with 1980s. And the first single was Going On, backed with Endless Harmony. And it says here that Going On is a song written by Brian Wilson and Mike Love for the American rock band The Beach Boys, oddly enough. It was released on their 1980 album, Keeping the Summer Alive. The single reached number 83 on the Billboard Hot 100. Now, we think about 83 not being great. But then again, if you're a 20-year act, keeping up with new music, it's amazing mm -hmm. to even get through that haze, if you will. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Going On is a great, great tune. And I think if you're putting together a compilation of the Beach Boys in the 1980s, 
this song is is a no-brainer. Well, let's kick off a little bit of Going On. that was going on from their 1980 album, Keeping the Summer Alive, which is kind of a backward-looking name for an album, right? <laughs> it was yeah. like, hey, the brand is as important as anything else. So they were on brand, I think is the phrase. Mm-hmm. So this brings us up to the second single from the 80s is Living with a Heartache, back with Santa Anna Wins. Now, that Santa Anna Wins, you can't get much more yacht rock than that, right? So, no. <laughs> but Living with a Heartache was written by Carl Wilson and Randy Bachman. One of two collaborations between the two writers that was recorded from August 27th through the 29th at Bachman's home studio known as The Barn in Linden, Washington. There were two further sessions at Rumbo Studios in November and December 1979. Living with a Heartache was released on the Beach Boys 1980 album Keeping the Summer Alive and it was subsequently released with a three-minute and five-second mix as a single backed with Santa Ana Wins, which failed to chart yeah. in the U.S. So going 83 on going on was a much better experience than how this worked <laughs> out. Uh, what are your thoughts on living with a heartache? You know, it's it's hard not to love every Carl Wilson-fronted song the Beach Boys did. The Beach Boys had multiple lead vocalists, but Carl was probably their most, I don't know, powerful, if you will, and most logical. I think he had the best voice to front the Beach Boys. You know, Mike Love sort of had that soft approach, but Carl Wilson's voice was very distinct and very forward and very powerful. Uh And again, it's hard for me to skip any Carl Wilson song. Right. Let's listen to a little bit of that right now, Living with a Heartache. I've loved you for so long It's hard to believe that you've really gone I'll try to change to what I should change I'm no good alone You know everyone sees that you left me alone With nothing but a heartache Our third single released in the 80s was Oh Darlin', backed with Endless Harmony. What do you think of this song? It's another Brian Wilson-Mike Love collaboration. Brian and Mike were a great songwriting team. And again, you know, I don't think Mike Love gets the credit that he thinks he deserves. But Mike Love brought, you know, a really, really important ingredient to the Beach Boys sound. And that was making sure that there was always something that the average listener could relate to. And I think that's probably the secret sauce that Mike Love brought to the Beach Boys. And it's it's apparent on all the songs that he wrote with Brian. He wanted it not only to sell on the beach in L.A., but and the farmlands of Poughkeepsie. He wanted it to work everywhere. Yeah, and and, I mean, that's ultimately why, you know, they went from surf to car songs, because they were like, hey, how can we catch those kids in the Midwest that don't have a beach to go to? Uh Absolutely. Oh, oh, darling. 
So the songs that we've heard up till now, and a couple of them coming up, still sound like we're trapped in the 60s or the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they think of music that's made in a decade, they think like, you know, at the beginning of every decade, a light turns on and everything changes. It doesn't work that way. It goes in progressive stages. So like the songs that came out in the early 80s, like the one uh, Living with the Heartache was recorded, what, in 79. So it wasn't informed by what was going on in the 80s when it came out. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't really overtly look for some of the production touches, you know, there's songs that they did in the 80s that you wouldn't be surprised if. Somebody said, oh, that was recorded and released in 1975. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, they never really got too crazy on the 80s production. Now, earlier we mentioned 1981's The Beach Boy Medley, backed with God Only Knows. What a great double 45 there. But there was something going on in the water at this point. I don't know if it was because people would take songs and give them a disco beat they would mix 45s in and outs, right? Mm -hmm. So you had things like uh, Stars on 45. Remember them? No. Where they would take various hits from like 1968 and they'd play like the top 20 songs within 145. And then there was things like ABBA's Stars on 45. And then Stars on 45 did one with the Beatles. And then the Beatles came back and said, well, we're putting out an album of soundtrack songs from our movies let's do a soundtrack beatles movie melody and it that's really one of the few things that has yet to be released by the beatles in cd form the 45 is the only thing that there is for all intents and purposes but i have to think that this beach boys medley thing was influenced by Stars on 45. Wikipedia, the font for all information, of course, says that the Beach Boys melody is a single containing a melody of popular Beach Boys songs from the 60s, edited by John Palladino, released in mid-1981. It capitalized on a melody craze begun by Stars on 45. Oh, there you go. The Beach Boys melody reached number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming the band's highest charting hit in the United States in over five years. The single peaked at number eight on the Cashbox sales chart. It also reached number four in New Zealand. The Beach Boys melody was first released on an album a year later in 1982 on Sunshine Dream. So there you go. There's no real reason to play this, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not really, no. I mean, uh, unless you're going to play the whole thing. But I mean, if no. you've heard Good Vibrations and Fun, Fun, Fun and Surf right. and Safari... There was no attempt to modernize it. They didn't put a, a fresh new beat underneath it or anything. The only interesting thing I'll mention about this is this was released at a period when Carl was off doing his solo career. So they made uh, a couple of TV appearances. Uh, they made one on the Merv Griffin show where they performed this and another on American Bandstand. And Brian sings the Carl part in Good Vibrations. 
So it's pretty funny to watch Brian lip sync to Carl. Mm. And you can see he's pretty amused by the idea. And even Mike chuckles a little bit at the absurdity of it all. (laughs) (laughs) So then this brings us up to our fourth single, Come Go With Me. This song actually did really well. This song was originally released on MIU, Mm -hmm. but not released as a single at the time. And the song was included on a Beach Boys compilation album, 10 Years of Harmony. But it rose to number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in January of 1982. And according to Al Jardine, he requested that bandmate Brian Wilson would contribute the horn arrangement. And Wilson devised it on the spot at Sunset Sound Recorders while dressed in a bathrobe. That sounds completely on brand for Brian Wilson in 1982. Does that guy know how to party or what? <laughs> so let's listen to a little bit of Come Go With Me. So there we go. Our next track, this one should have been a huge hit. This one should have been a Bafo Sacco, number one with a bullet, that kind of thing. But to me, it was almost like striking while the iron is really cold. (laughs) Yeah. And the track is called East Meets West with the Four Seasons, backed with Rhapsody by the Four Seasons. And this is a vocal extravaganza through an 80s filter. Yeah, I mean, you've got two of the most talented and successful vocal groups of all time collaborating, and it didn't even chart. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre when you think about it, but it was another signal from people saying, look, we love you, but we just want that thing you cooked last week in the last 20 years. Bring us that again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that happens sometimes. You know, one of the amazing things about during this, these precedented times, during the COVID crisis is Frankie Valley and what is called the Four Seasons at this point, the current incarnation of the Four Seasons, have been doing some really cool Zoom videos and performances. They're really neat. You need to check them out, folks. But here's a little bit of East Meets West. East meets West with the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys. So, it's a shame that didn't chart. I was going to say higher, but it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it seemingly didn't move the needle for them. So, our next single from 1985 is "Get You Back," backed with Male Ego. This one sounds like it's got Wall Street and <laughs> Tough Guy written all over it, right? It's <laughs> seems like it's very male centric here. 
<laughs> yeah. Macho. Yeah, Get You Back is probably my favorite Beach Boys song from the 80s. And it's surprisingly a song that wasn't written or co-written by Brian. Um, it's a Mike Love and Terry Melcher collaboration. Just a really, really, really catchy, catchy song. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. I remember seeing the video on MTV and going, they just don't seem to fit in. You know, they were kind of riding that fat boy thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you barely see him in the video, too. I yeah. think that was, you know, kind of the, you know, let's keep the, the old guys off screen. And the funny thing about it is they were all like in their early 40s at the time. Which... I know. It's so bizarre. <laughs> that was considered, you know, old and, uh, you know, out of fashion at that point. Whereas, you know, it's funny, like Dave Grohl is in his 50s at this point. Nobody looks at the Foo Fighters and says, look at those old guys, you know, trying to play rock and roll. Yeah, but don't you think we're in a weird time? Like, for example, if you ask anybody, what's the newest band that you love? And they go, oh, I really like that new band, the Foo Fighters. And it's like... <laughs> Where have you been for the last 25 years, right? Yeah. (laughs) But that just shows – it just seems like we're stuck in this arrested development where we can't think past that time, you know? Yeah. It's very strange. But this song was off of the Beach Boys self-titled album there. This song peaked at number 26 nationally and number two on the adult contemporary chart. Look out, VH1. Here we come. And the drums, like, start out, and it almost sounds like Do It Again. Yeah, I yeah. hate to keep harping on this wonderful song I love, but, you know, it kind of kind of has that vibe, so. Yeah, yeah. Between that and sort of, like, Be My Baby. Yeah, because the backing vocals are kind of like from Hushabye by the Mystics. Mm-hmm. And you could even, like, kind of pull in some of Bruce Springsteen's Hungry Heart kind of vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which Mike Love later covered on a tribute album. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so you got to look that up. Yeah, I, I will. Yeah, Hungry Heart's a great song. Now, this album was produced by Steve Levine from Culture Club fame. Uh huh. So, just kind of understand that some of what you're hearing is through that filter. So, there you go. Yeah, it's a really fascinating album because it was really the first true marriage between real contemporary production techniques. And the Beach Boys, and Brian was kind of fascinated by the new technology. You know, the Fairfield synthesizer was a big thing where, you know, you'd have to do a lot of programming to get sounds out of it. So it was kind of like a new toy for Brian. And, you know, when he got to see the sounds that were at his disposal that, you know, probably took him hours or days or even months to achieve in the 60s, you could sort of get them in in a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. So that kind of got Brian excited about, you know, making music for them again. And and I think that 85 Beach Boys album is really, really solid collection of songs. So let's listen to a little bit of Get You Back.
Our next track is off of 1985's The Beach Boys. It's Getting Late, backed with It's Okay. Let's check a little bit of that out right now. a fairly contemporary sound Mm -hmm. it's getting late is a song written by carl wilson myrna smith Schilling, and robert white johnson it was released 1985 and the music video is directed by dominic orlando it was filmed on location in malibu california two months after get you back what are your thoughts on it's getting late you know, again, it's another Carl tune, and Myrna Smith Schilling was the wife of Carl's manager, and she had actually co-wrote most of the stuff on his solo albums. So they had a great songwriting partnership, and again, I, I think Carl, as a songwriter, he was always a dependable guy when it came to delivering songs for the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they were kind of looking at what Chicago was doing, saying like, hey, do you think we can get into that? Kind of territory money kind of a thing. Yeah, a lot of horns. Yeah. Our next song, She Believes in Love Again, backed with It's Just a Matter of Time. She Believes in Love Again was a song written by Bruce Johnston. And it was later re-recorded for the That's Why God Made the Radio Sessions, but was not included on the final track list. What are your thoughts on She Believes in Love Again? You know, Bruce Johnston was always good at delivering that certain type of song. Uh, He's a very, very talented songwriter. So this brings us up to 1986, and we now are going to like underline it. To me, it seems like the last couple songs kind of strayed a bit, get a little bit too polished, if you will. We want to take you back to like, hey, remember cruising? Remember rock and roll and surfing and when things were fun? And in 1986, the Beach Boys wanted to let you know that rock and roll to the rescue, it was coming. Rock and Roll to the Rescue was backed with Good Vibrations Live. Let's check out some of Rock and Roll to the Rescue. Gonna get a ticket cause I really gotta go. There's a party going down at the Rock and Roll Show. Baby, get ready if you really wanna go. Now everybody's going to the Rock and Roll Show. So you see that by them putting good vibrations on the back, it's a little reminder like, we are those guys. Remember us? We're the good times. 
Rock and Roll to the Rescue is a single released by the Beach Boys on June 9th, 1986. It was recorded for their 1986 Greatest Hits compilation album, Made in the USA. And this is when they started doing the dreaded new song. Remember those things where, like, you could be a Hall & Oates fan and you'd go, I've got everything they did, but they put one song on this Greatest Hits album, so I have to buy it. Wait, they just put out another Greatest Hits album and another song. So you wound up with like nine competing Greatest Hits albums with one new song each. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those things, if you go to your iTunes library and you're a Beach Boys fan, how many versions of Fun, Fun, Fun do you have? You know, it's it's kind of like Kiss with Rock and Roll All Night. You know, how many versions of Rock and Roll All Night are are in your iTunes? Yeah, that's it's a it's a truth, folks. It's a truth. This single reached number 68 on the U.S. Billboard Pop Singles Chart. Brian Wilson sang most of the lead vocals with Al Jardine and Carl Wilson both having some lines. Mike Love and Bruce Johnston did backing vocals. The group did a live performance of this during their 1985 Farm Aid concert appearance with Mike Love, Carl Wilson, and Al Jardine sharing lead vocals. The song has an autobiographical feel to it. Would you agree with that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And this was another thing that was happening at the time. There was a 12-inch single of Rock and Roll to the Rescue, which featured an extended remix of the song, which has a lot more keyboard and heavier drum beats, because that's what we want when we're in the club <laughs> mixing and scratching. We want to <laughs> rock and roll to the rescue. Yeah. <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. A lot more bass guitar in that one. But uh, that's on YouTube, folks. If you want to hear the 12-inch of Rock and Roll of the Rescue, check it out. What are your thoughts on this one? It's not my favorite. <laughs> you know, it's comfortable. Um, and, you know, it's good to know that the Beach Boys are there doing that kind of song. But I think about the video a lot, and the video is really, really cheesy. Of course it is. That's that's what you do in videos. Everything in a video is cheesy. But at least they weren't recording Do It Again and saying, we already did it, but we're going to do it again. So, yeah. you know, there's my last Do It Again joke for this episode. So this brings us up to 1986's California Dreamin', backed with Lady Liberty. Let's check some of this out. All the leaves are brown, and the sky is gray. I've been for a long on a winter's day. I'd be safe and warm if I was in LA. So, this one's pretty interesting. It, it had a really interesting video. Do you remember it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Black and white. It's in a church. The video featured the Beach Boys along with John Phillips, the evil one, <laughs> Michelle Phillips, and Roger McGuinn. And, you know, the Beach Boys, when it comes out, they're all there trying to look so hard, right? The boys are trying to look so hard, to quote Bruce Springsteen. But there's one problem. Bruce Johnston... Cannot pull off dark and gloomy. No, and, and God love him for it. Like, the rest of the Beach Boys are all, like, grimacing, which I don't know who wants, like, grungy Beach Boys. Yeah. 
But the first person we see is Al Jardine, and he looks like he's going to whip someone's ass. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's the Beach Boys all butch. Yeah. And they, like, roll up into this church, and you see a priest, and he's played by John Phillips, the evil one. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. What we know about him now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Just anytime I see him, I want to take a bath. Yeah. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Uh, and not in a good way. It's, ugh. Anyhow, the performance is really good. Yeah, I mean, it's a song that was made for the Beach Boys. Pretty much. This version was produced by Terry Melcher and features Roger McGuinn of the Birds on a 12-string guitar. Mm-hmm. Denny Doherty was on the East Coast and declined to be part of it. Cass Elliott had died in 1974, but Michelle Phillips does make an appearance, so it was a de facto reunion of what was left of the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah. This version of the song is later referenced in the lyrics of the Dead Milkman's 1988 novelty hit, Punk Rock Girl. The song charted at a modest number 57 on Billboard's Hot 100. It reached number 8 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart. And it was supported by a music video that saw heavy rotation on MTV. For some reason, MTV thought, we really like depressed and angry black and white Beach Boys. <laughs> well, I mean, 86 was really the year of the 60s, you know, artists really coming back. That's when the monkeys started replaying on MTV, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's really when the, like, the 60s sort of revival really was in full swing. That was probably maybe the, the peak of it, right? Well, again, we were going to that nostalgia thing every 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it was 1986, 1987, 1988, all the stuff that was done in 67, 68, all that stuff was coming back. Whether it was at the movies while dealing with uh, Vietnam films, soundtracks, it was all coming back, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was part of it. But it is a bizarre video. When you think about the Beach Boys, you don't think about this. This looks like it could have been a Bauhaus video more. <laughs> Yes. And a Beach Boys video. So. Yeah, yeah. And of course, California Dreamin' was off the greatest hits compilation made in the USA. So this brings us up to the cultural touchstone point that is Kokomo, backed with Tutti Frutti, off the famous cocktail soundtrack. Jamaica. What can you tell us about Kokomo? What can be said about Kokomo <laughs> that hasn't been said before? Again, Mike Love will tell you it was their first number one song since Good Vibrations. And um, he'll also tell you that it was not written or co-written by Brian Wilson. Did he stick his tongue out and say, mm, when he <laughs> says that? It's a big badge of honor for Mike because, you know, I think he, for whatever reason, didn't appreciate living in the great, great shadow that is Brian Wilson, um, and was able to stand up on his own two feet and say, hey, look, I can write a number one song, too. So there. Yeah. I mean, he was a co-writer on Good Vibration, so I don't know what his big issue is, but, you know, Kokomo had a lot of help. It was written by John Phillips, mm-hmm. 
you know, the bad one. <laughs> the evil one. Let's not uh, – The evil one. Don't go off yeah. brand. Satan. <laughs> the evil one. Scott McKenzie, uh, Mike Love, and Terry Melcher. So, I mean, there was – you know, I mean, anytime you have four people working on a song, it better be good. Well, mileage will vary, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> but this song is a song that is still being played and used and marketed – like, you can play it in a movie where someone's being murdered, and you're going like, oh my god, I'm never going to hear Kokomo the same way again. Yes, you will. Because eventually, we all have it playing in our head at some point, right? It'll come back to you safe and secure. It's not going to be ruined by its soundtrack usage or usage by maybe a gecko singing it in an insurance commercial. Whatever. This is a song that we all love, and some of us even love to hate it, but even those people are secretly, kind of like with disco, right? Mm -hmm. We're all going around like, man, I hate disco, but we're buying like Bee Gees albums, you know, behind everyone's back, so. Yeah, I mean, this song, say what you will about it, it kind of cemented the Beach Boys' place in pop culture and music in the 1980s, but it's got a great, great Carl Wilson vocal on the chorus, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite Carl Wilson vocals from the '80s, and uh, I I say that with no shame. And of course, we've got the legendary drummer John Stamos <laughs> making an appearance in the video and all that. So it's kind yeah. of bizarre. I remember just being freaked out. Is that the guy from General Hospital and Full House? Is that him? It is him. Yeah, I, I mean, do you want to talk about the John Stamos involvement with the Beach Boys? Now is the time. <laughs> so, you know, Mike Love, again, was sort of always looking for ways to make the Beach Boys relatable to as many people as possible. So, longtime Beach Boys touring member Jeffrey Foskett, who is really known for being able to do a lot of the Brian Wilson falsetto stuff after Brian wasn't able to do it anymore was friends with John Stamos, and he invited him to come to a Beach Boys concert in the 80s. And they invited John up on stage to sing with them, and he got such a huge response that Mike Love was like, hey, we should start bringing this guy on stage more often. And eventually, John worked his way up to being, you know, sort of a percussionist and drummer for him. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I did in my summer vacation, I became a Beach Boy. <laughs> and he's still collaborating with Mike Love to this day. Um, I think they did a quarantine video back in the spring where they did one of those Zoom calls, and um, John's there playing drums. Wow. What a trip. <laughs> Amazing. Who would have thunk, right? Who would have yeah. thunk it? So then that leaves us with our last single from 1989, still cruising, backed with Kokomo. Might as well get that money again, right? <laughs> Let's check out a little bit of Still Cruisin'. Come on, let's cruise, you got nothing to lose, so come on, let's cruise, you got nothing to lose, so come on, let's cruise, you got nothing to lose, so come on, hey baby, come on. All of these years. Hey girl, let's go for 
This song screams, we're trying to remind you that we're more than just Kokomo. We're those classic beach-going guys that you love so much. Yeah, yeah. And this was sort of, uh, I think, when the Beach Boys finally threw in the towel and went full sort of nostalgia heritage act. Which is amazing, because you just had, in many ways, one of the biggest songs, if not the biggest song of their career Yeah, in Kokomo. I mean, it's it's amazing that you would now abandon that ship and just put it in uh, drive and just cruise, right? I guess they were really literally still cruising. They went into cruise control, still cruising control. Yeah, and I almost wonder if everybody involved with Kokomo knew that that lightning would not strike again. You know, you talked about sort of the cultural phenomenon it became, and I think anytime you have a song that just is that much of a monster – you know, it's it's almost like that one-hit wonder syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. But for a one-hit wonder for a band that's had 35 hits, you know, up till now, it's, it's amazing, or whatever yes. number the hits would be. This song was released from the 1989 album Still Cruisin', which was a kind of mini compilation of songs that were soundtrack songs and other things. But this single released, and it reached number 11 in Austria and number 28 in Australia, and number 93 on the USA's Billboard Hot 100. So that is how the Beach Boys ended their singles run in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Some good stuff there. There's, there's some good stuff. So once again, Craig, we want to tell people to check out your video that you've put together about the Beach Boys, and that is called? Keeping the 80s Alive. Mm-hmm. So check out Keeping the 80s Alive with the Beach Boys. Make sure to dress to impress and wear your good flip-flops. So <laughs> keeping it with the beach theme, right? So Yeah. Well, we hope that you enjoyed us looking back at the Beach Boys of the 80s. And it's not the Beach Boys that most people want to start a thing out on where we're going to talk about the first 10 years or whatever. We took you right to Kokomo, baby. <laughs> Not many people are going to do that. Right, right. We bring that to you right here. Pop with Ken Mills. That's right. Pop culture, baby. So we hope that you had a drink in your hand and your toes in the sand. And all we need is a beautiful girl. So uh, life is good. I want to thank you for being part of Pop today. And as always, you are welcome here anytime to do this. And thank you for producing this episode, sir. I hope I didn't make it too difficult on you. Oh, no. Thank you, Ken. It's my pleasure. Uh, podcasting with you is always one of the highlights of my uh, podcasting day. You sad, miserable boy. All right. <laughs> so we will see you all on the next episode of Pop. Thank you for listening to us. And thank you for putting up with my flights of fancy my whims of wisdom, my love of all things pop culture, and be good to one another, love one another, and love you, Craig. Love you too, Ken. All right. We will see you all in the next episode of Pop with Ken Mills and Craig sometimes. <laughs> say bye, Craig. Oh, bye-bye. No, say bye, Craig. Bye, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. Pop is an online, nonprofit pop culture audio fanzine made for fans by fans. Any samples of music, TV, or movies heard here remain the property of their owners. 
Pop, a pop culture podcast, is not affiliated with any products we review or discuss. Opinions heard here belong to the people who express them and may not reflect the views of the pop staff. If you like something that you heard, buy it at your local record, video, or bookstores, or wherever pop is found. If you enjoy the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm your announcer, Christine Wolf, saying whatever you do, make sure it pops. Say goodnight, Dick. <laughs>